welcome to the Introduction to Clinical Research podcast. My name is Debbie. I use she, her pronouns. I work in clinical research and I have decided to explain it to my friend, Elise. Say hello, Elise. Hello, Elise. Hi, my name is Elise. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Uh, I don't work in clinical research, so I'm here to learn from Debbie and ask the questions we're all wondering. <laughs> Even some of the questions I'm wondering, Elise will ask. And many of the questions, Debbie, is like, I'm not wondering that. Please stop, <laughs> for the love of God. <laughs> I would never. How dare you? Into the question ravine with any questions like that. If you want a full introduction of who we are, why we're here, it's at the top of episode one. So go check that out if you haven't already. Hi, everyone. Elise from the future here to let you know we've got a podcast website now. It's intro to clinicalresearch.podbean.com. And there you can find transcripts. We're still working on the backlog, but we should be catching up pretty quick. And you can also find... Credit to our very cool friend who let us use their music for our intro and outro, Sam Winnie. So thanks, Sam, and hope you enjoy the website and the show. We are here to pull the curtain back on medical research. So hopefully you feel more informed and you feel that you can trust the outcomes and the goings on of research. There's a lot we can discuss. We're going to take it bit by bit. And today we are going to look at how new treatments, devices, things like that, that I would generally call therapies, how therapies are discovered and developed. It's a long process that involves many steps before it even gets into humans. Okay, so Debbie, uh, mm-hmm. when I hear therapies, I think mm-hmm. mental health therapy. So mm-hmm. what what exactly does therapy encompass here? It is a, a broad term. And you are right that my brain also, um, when we say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm having therapy, I'm going to therapy. It's not always that you're thinking about like receiving a drug. You're usually talking about like talk therapy or something like that you may have with your psychiatrist or other counsellor. For me, in this kind of medical context, therapy means anything that is being done to try and change like a clinical presentation of a thing. So like mental health therapy, you're trying to change the presentation of some negative mental health uh, situation that you're experiencing, right? Chemotherapy, hey, it's even got it in the name, is there to try and kill the cancer uh, that may be having a bad time in your body. Um, but it, it's so it can be a new drug or an existing drug used in a different way. It can be... Um, a device, so something like a pacemaker. It could be surgery, can be therapeutic, but it could also be like a public health campaign or um, some education around, you know, the benefits of getting enough sleep and um, things like this. But what we are going to focus on is the drug or device side of things. So all of those things are therapies, but we're kind of in the Venn diagram drilling down into This is an experimental drug or an experimental device, and we're researching that clinically. Okay, so the the public health campaigns would be an example of maybe a therapy that doesn't have clinical research, doesn't have a device or a drug associated with it, but it could, like... Uh, well, yeah, so I I guess that's that's an interesting piece of it, right? Like launching something like, hey... Don't forget to do this preventative thing, uh, like a educational campaign from a public health standpoint. Um, isn't necessarily, you know, I don't think of that as something as a therapy. I think of that as like, uh, well, a public health campaign. Yeah, sure. But it can have a therapeutic benefit down the track, prophylactically or preventatively. Um, and often research will be done into the effectiveness, I say will be done, should be done, into the effectiveness of anything that you're applying like that. Um, And the things that stick around should be the ones that are proven to work in research. Obviously, that's not always the case. Um, But it it should be, you know, if, if you take this drug or if you use this device or if you follow this um, standard operating procedure in the operating theatre or um you know kids who are introduced to a variety of fruits and veg when they're young will they have a more 
um, balanced diet when they're older. You know, these kinds of things, they're all therapeutic in that they can all improve your uh, overall general health or presentation of certain things. Um, but we're not going to look at all of those because the rules for all of those things are different and the requirements for what we're going to be talking about are some of the strictest ones. So you can implement a new educational program relatively easily and you can measure its effectiveness um, kind of as you're running it, right? Whereas you can't put a new experimental drug onto the market widely just at the drop of a hat. Not that you could do that with an uh, educational program, but it's not, not the, the same. same yeah, thing. I just have to sit through mm -hmm. like seven months of approvals to send a single email for something like that versus. <laughs> mm. oh, so maybe it is the same. It's... Versus years and years yeah, right, of, of clinical research. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. OK. So, yeah, we're going to be looking at drugs that are discovered and devices that are discovered. Um so drugs are things that usually have a chemical or metabolic action on the body and devices, other stuff, anything else. Okay. And anything um, else. Well, okay. You don't, sorry. <laughs> not necessarily anything else. Um, it, it's mechanism of action. The way it works is not chemically. So it could be uh, mechanical like a tongue depressor and you can't see this everybody but i'm now miming pressing my tongue down uh, um you know or it could be something like a um artificial hip right that's in my body taking the place of a joint that was damaged or worn out or whatever a pacemaker that um provides an electrical current to keep my heart beating um surgical tools that allow surgeons to do what they need to do to repair or or um, change human bodies surgically. Um, so, yeah, a device is anything that's primary mechanism of action therapeutically isn't chemically, but it's a physical thing, right? It's doing a thing. It, so it's, it's mechanical or electrical or something like that that's not chemically led. But here's the weird thing. You can also have devices that have a chemical component to them. Cool. Love that. Superb. Um, but its primary mechanism of action isn't chemical. So something like uh, if you had an artificial hip that had slow-release painkillers in it or slow-release anti-inflammatories to kind of manage for the first month after it was installed, the healing process or something like that, or antibiotics, like, infused into it. Its primary mechanism of action is going to be as a hip, mechanically being a joint. But secondarily, it's also assisting the healing process, assisting pain management, assisting infection management, something like that, for example. Right. And, and I'm guessing, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here, that you would need to prove that the, me the mechanism is safe, but and effective but also that the if you wanted to infuse it with antibiotics that that was also effective right you couldn't just be like oh and we're doing that yes but um uh, you probably wouldn't use and this is completely hypothetical because i don't know of a hip that is infused with an antibiotic Fair. you probably wouldn't use a brand new experimental antibiotic you'd use something that's been on the market a while that you have weight of evidence for and you'd use something that is shown to if it's in the body and it's being infused slowly in this way it's effective and so all you'd have to do is prove that your device is i want a better word than leaking dispensing diffusing the <laughs> diffusing applying whatever the right amount of drug out of itself into the hip zone um and you already have the weight of data to show that that antibiotic is right effective. because the rest of the data is already out there about the fact that this is a way to it's yes. safe okay. and it works yeah exactly exactly um you would collect data on you'd look at like overall infections in people that had a hip replacement with this antibiotic hip versus non-antibiotic hip for sure you'd have to kind of prove that um you'd have to prove that it was safe in order to be able to market it but you'd also want to prove that in order to be able to sell it because if you can prove that look my device halves the number of infections post-surgery 
It's a big I'm nodding deal. vigorously for people who can't see. <laughs> Which on a podcast is everyone exactly. except me. <laughs> so, discovery of a new thing, whether it's a device or whether it's a drug. Drugs particularly, um, it can be random, but more often than not, for a drug or for a device, whoever's looking has a target in mind. And the people that are looking are usually, it's going to be like a pharmaceutical company or an academic institution, like a, a researcher at a university or something like this, right? They're learning for the sake of learning and they, they maybe have a particular metabolic pathway that they're interested in or a particular clinical need, like a particular disease, and they want to solve a problem in relation to that. Drug companies will often look at where there's an unmet medical need. So there's a population of people and they don't have a treatment available or where there aren't currently very good treatments or where there's a lot of money. <clears throat> so because that's their motivation, right? So they may look at and they is pharmaceutical companies, academic researchers, anyone that's doing this kind of work. They will look at a chemical in the body and they may test different other molecules for interactions with that chemical. So if you know chemical A causes this effect in people with a particular disease or causes this disease in people, you want to manage, mitigate or remove that molecule in order to alleviate, minimise the symptoms. So it starts with a kind of discovery process and you'll throw a whole bunch of stuff against the wall and you see what sticks. And then if there are interactions between molecule A and any of our other test molecules, that will be tested preclinically. So this is in a test tube, in a Petri dish, in a lab. That's called in vitro testing. And then later, once we're happy with kind of the lab data that we've got, we're going to take that into animal testing in vivo um, to determine, you know, what is the interaction between these molecules? Um, is it controllable? How long does it last? What is the safe dose level? Are there potential side effects? And thousands of molecules will go through these kinds of tests before we narrow it down to one or two that are found to be safe and that they work or are efficacious. It's a big word that means it works doing what you want it to do. And for a drug or a device, we're talking primarily about drugs when we talk about molecules, but it's got to be both. It's got to be safe and so it's got to work. At this point, preclinically, how much can we really determine about a molecule's safety in the human body if it's not in the human body? Like if it's in a Petri dish, can we really mm. say like, yeah, this molecule is safe for people? Like how, how would you even know that? Yeah, great question. Um, the answer is you can't necessarily say that it is safe, but you can say that it definitely isn't safe. If, for example, you put molecule A and molecule B into the test tube and an explosive reaction occurs, that's not going to be good in a human body. Right. Right? But obviously putting just two molecules together in a Petri dish is wildly oversimplifying all of the complex stuff that goes on inside a human body. So it is usually tested substantially in a lab in lots of different ways that they run a whole bunch of different tests on it in pathways and with with other molecules shuttling things around and stuff like that to basically try and find out is there anything massively deadly about this combination of molecules and if not it will then progress and a lot of combinations will be either nothing happens in which case i'm not going to waste my time going any further or oh everything's on fire i'm not going to take that any further the ones that where something happens, and maybe it's not a too big a thing, but something happens and it's probably more or less in the direction that you want, but you know, none of the none of the things explode, that's good. You can also do cell testing in a lab. So instead of if we start with like one molecule and one molecule and combine them and see what happens, that's very simple. To get a bit more complicated, you might take cells or a few cells or a, a clump of tissue and test on that and again see what happens and if all the cells die a bit of a red flag this is the, right? the bleach will kill what you want it to kill but it will also kill everything else everything so we else. don't put it in humans yeah <laughs> exactly we yeah mm -mm. exactly exactly great point 
we will then the next kind of level up from from a bit of tissue for example um could be animal testing right and in the pharmaceutical industry we do test in animals before we test in humans there are good arguments on both sides in terms of what animal models can show us and what they can't but at the moment the way things are built we do do animal yeah testing. and and i mean in terms of like what it can show us like i think maybe i'm kind of the peak audience for these questions and these arguments are uh, to be had and and we can kick this down into the ravine the philosophy ravine uh if we must but the the you know i'm a vegetarian for ethical reasons and i choose cruelty free brands and brands for cosmetics and things that actively are against like animal testing right because of the Mm -hmm. the kind of ethical concerns around animal cruelty and things um which i know is a huge can of worms to invoke more creatures that we use for other things um but the Mm -hmm. you know my question is i know with like cosmetics testing for example that there is a lot of um uh argument out there that says like hey if you test this like lotion on like a little rat uh the skin of the little rat having a reaction or not having a reaction has almost no bearing on whether or not that will be true for like a human is that I mean, how does that kind of factor in here? Yep. Great point. So as far as animal models go, like for skin, for example, my understanding is that the closest model, the closest animal to having human-like skin is a pig. So if you want to test dermatological, i.e. skin products, a pig is the way to go rather than something like a rat that has fur. We don't. Um... So animal models can tell us a lot of things, but you're right, they cannot tell us everything. And so this is why we've had the in vitro lab testing and then we go to animal testing and then we go to human testing Uh, um, because animal testing cannot tell us just because a drug behaves X way in a rabbit, it's going to behave the same way in a human being because we are similar but different creatures. If you think about just something as simple as we don't have fur and we don't have the same diet as a rabbit. We are also physically bigger. So there's, you know, those are very simple variables that will mean it's different. But it can tell us some things because some of our metabolic pathways are the same and some are very similar, even if there are differences. And so if you are wanting to test a particular drug on an animal and then a human and you want to see what is its effect on this pathway... You can measure that in an animal the same way you could measure it in a human. And it will help you identify red flags. It will help you identify what the safe dose is. And I think probably the question for the philosophy ravine is if we removed the animal testing out of drug research, would human beings be willing to be the first living being test subject for new drugs? Because before an experimental drug gets to the first inhuman stage, it will have been in a series of different animals. And the types of animals that you will select will depend on the kind of thing you're looking at, right? And to try and get as close to human beings as possible. Um, Usually starting in small rodents and then escalating from there, shall we say. Um, But there there are regulations around animal testing and drug research. It is currently a requirement, um, but it is not... It's not something that is, I think, it would depend on your definition. Um, There are rules about how safe and well the animals have to be kept, how much space they need, what their diet is, what you can and cannot do to animals that is or isn't abuse. Now, I'm sure some people listening and perhaps yourself are unhappy with the idea of animal testing at any point. Whatever you do, it's, it's, it's not ethically correct. Okay. I can understand that absolutely, but at this point, it is a requirement in the process because we haven't yet got to the point where human beings are willing to put themselves on the line as I'm the first living subject that this drug is going to go into and I don't know if it's going to do anything and kill me. So until we get to that point, I think we're going to have animal testing. Okay, so if we get through our in vitro lab tests, our in vivo animal tests, and there's if we start with a pile of a thousand drugs, it'll whittle down very quickly it's good to picture it as a funnel. So you start with a very wide funnel at the top and then it gets very narrow at the bottom. And so if you're a thousand molecules, maybe only one or two get through to 
in human testing, clinical research, right? Devices are similar, but there's often less of a narrowing down funnel. Instead, it's more like a physical invention that you might improve over time based on the results that you're seeing from research or experience or something like this. So devices are things that have their primary action not chemically. A need will be identified the same as for a drug. So we need to control an irregular heartbeat, for example. And something is built or designed to meet that need. And it then has to be tested. The testing process is similar and requires robust data before it can be approved. But the testing process may also be different because if you're building a pacemaker, you're going to need to test its battery. You're going to need to test its software. You're going to need to test the longevity of the bits of it in contact with humans. So this is not to say that animal testing doesn't happen in devices, but it's less effective in certain devices, like an implanted human hip replacement. You you can't test the size of that device would preclude it being tested on Absolutely, a mouse. Absolutely, yeah. On pretty much anything. Because even if it's big enough to be tested in something like another primate primate would you be able mm. to one test in that large of primates because aren't most of those endangered species and all that kind of stuff and like very controlled mm. species but also two their hips work totally differently than ours so even if you could implant it because they're often does on it matter fours? yeah yeah so i think you could i mean you could scale the device to make it work if you wanted to and testing does happen on primates they're maybe not the most common uh, animal but yeah it does for exactly the reason that they are the closest to us in a lot of ways the priority of testing is different in a device than in a drug and this is not to say there isn't risk but the risk is likely to be less as long as you prove that the materials in your device aren't toxic so when they come into contact with the human they're not going to kill you you know if they're, if they're made of materials that are well established we're going to know um and and often with devices, the implantation and the management of it is more than just the use of it. Devices, there are also scales. And I can't remember this off the top of my head. Um, but like the need for testing of a tongue depressor is very different compared to the need of an infusion insulin pump, for example. They're both devices. So there's a, there's a sliding scale, whereas for drugs, the requirements are more or less the same. You've got, to, you've got to really rigorously prove at every stage. Whereas, you know, what's the harm that you can cause if you use a tongue depressor that doesn't meet certain requirements? Maybe somebody gets a splinter in their tongue, that's bad. But that compared to a, a drug that's in your body. Yeah, like the basically like a, a risk-benefit kind of situation here. Or, or just a risk situation, honestly, is what you're talking about in terms of like the risk of what a tongue depressor, like the worst case scenario for a tongue depressor is like even even thinking pretty catastrophically it's hard to come up with like uh -huh. a really catastrophic result of like a worst case scenario versus it's not hard to think of a catastrophic end result of you implanted something that right like you put a metal or a or a chemical into someone's body that then caused like immediate yeah total organ it, failure yeah, like, oh, I've implanted bleach in this yes, person. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I can I can imagine how incredible, like, yeah, mm -hmm. ha, like even, even a tongue depressor that has been dipped in bleach and then applied to a tongue, that sounds Ooh. awful, but it's ah. way less awful than like, oops, the insulin pump had bleach in it, you know, like. Yeah, uh-huh. And it just, or, or the insulin pump just keeps pumping insulin mm -hmm. no matter what. Right. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Yes, yeah, so um, discovery of these new therapies, uh, it, it often goes that they have a target in mind and they aim for that um, in quite a kind of bulldogish way. Like they, they keep going after the thing because particularly with drugs, this funnel needs to narrow and that takes time and money in order then to discover things. Don't you risk like, what if that molecule that was fine or that drug, you know, that was fine in terms of it didn't cause any type of catastrophic failure um, or it didn't in Petri dish show signs of anything or anything like that. But then like, mm. it doesn't do what you were targeted. You said they're very bulldogish, right? So like they're focused, like, I don't know, lowering heart rate. Um, 
right? Reducing pressure, blood pressure, we'll say. And it doesn't do anything to reduce blood pressure, but maybe it does something, something else that we have no clue about. Would that ever get discovered? Well, it's funny that you mentioned (laughs) blood pressure because boy, howdy, do I have an example for you, Elise? Um, Yes, for sure. Things can be discovered randomly like that. So, uh, story time. A drug company called Pfizer. You I may have maybe heard a little. Of them. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, were trying to develop a blood pressure managing drug um, a few years ago now, and they had gone through the whole process of testing and were in human trials, and they realised that the drug wasn't effective enough at managing blood pressure in the way that they wanted. But it did have an impact on blood pressure in certain (laughs) areas, unexpectedly, because this drug is now on the market uh, and widely known as Viagra. Aha. But was discovered accidentally when patients reported this unanticipated side effect whilst Mm -hmm. on a blood pressure Mm -hmm. medicine trial. Yeah, some patients reported that, huh? (laughs) A certain a certain subset of patients reported a certain side effect when taking the drug that is now known as Viagra. Excellent, love that. So, but that was that was random. And in, here's the here's the interesting thing, right? Um, there's a big push in research at the moment, and there has been for for a few years, and it's continuing about transparency in publishing results, and that's because, right? It's a bit hack, but what's one man's trash is another man's treasure. So as a blood pressure medicine, Viagra was no good. As a, you know, a medicine that provided gender affirming care for um, people who may need it for erectile dysfunction or something similar. Absolute gold. Brilliant. So this is why the, the kind of the bulldog approach has to be acknowledged, because drug companies will be going down this road looking for whatever it may be, blood pressure medicine, blood pressure medicine, blood pressure medicine. And they could miss the pot of gold that cures something else or that treats something else or that manages something else over there. And so publishing results in a transparent way where they're publicly available allows other people to go and see those results and go, oh, interesting. That links up with this other thing that I've been thinking about. I wonder if I can test it. And if you don't publish your results, even the failures, it means that other people are going to be repeating that research, which is a waste of time, money, and patience. And potentially, like, Like, harm to people if that, right? mm, Although, yeah, mm -hmm. one would hope that if you found something that was like, oh, we got as far as putting it in humans and then it caused harm, that you would at least publish that? No, I'm getting getting a look. (laughs) See, I love that you think that. But unfortunately, historically, I mean, okay, in 2023, it's better. And it's a lot better than when I started working in the industry. So few things are better in 2023 that honestly, it's just nice to hear you say that. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely better. And I think when when you look at the, the rates of publication, so basically what you can do is for clinical trials in drugs, it is required that it is listed on a publicly available database. So in the US, you've got clinicaltrials.gov. There are other other databases available. I'm not marketing any particular one. Um, you have to register your study on one of those databases. That allows people, you, me, to go and find a study if we want to participate in a particular study. We can go find it because they're all on this publicly available register. And it also allows people like me or others to go and find studies and then go looking for the publication results and go, your study said it completed two years ago. You've not published anything. What are you playing at? I see. And if we compare, like, from 10 years ago to now, there have been big improvements in terms of the conversion rate of studies registered on these publicly available databases and those that have published results. For particularly for pharmaceutical research, big pharma companies are actually doing pretty well, even at publishing their failures. And there's a bit of a because of the way capitalism is, 
pharma companies are not motivated to publish their failures because it could decrease their share price, which means they then have less money to play with in discovering new drugs. Okay. Yep. Now I understand that argument, but I don't. Well, care. this was something. I mean, like when you, I know I'm interjecting in the middle of your thought, but when you said like pot mm-hmm. of gold, I was thinking about how much money Pfizer must make off Viagra. <laughs> oh, billions! It's it's yeah, a billion so dollar like, drug, and there was something. When did it come off patent, or is it off patent 2025? There's there was a big deal about. I think they got the patent extended so they could continue sure, to make more yeah, money off why not? it, and it it yeah did their share price some good. So, and we always we have to balance in the world that we live in the capitalism that is driving the pharmaceutical industry just how dangerous that can be for human care and health and well-being because the needs of a capitalist system and the needs of a human being are not aligned so what was i talking about elise before capitalism reared its ugly head oh god is there anything before capitalism reared its ugly head debbie money oh transparency i remember yes so pharmaceutical companies are better now than they were 10 years ago at publishing the results of their studies even the failures even despite the fact that there's a kind of demotivation for them to do that based on stock prices etc where we see studies registered so on these publicly available databases and no results ever appear is more common in academic research much more common in academic I just, research. Thinking about how, because having an academic background myself, how hard it is to publish academic research. I know that may not be the only reason, but I'm just thinking yeah. about like how incredibly slow and arduous that process is. I can imagine that's one barrier. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There are heaps of barriers. And when we think about like peer reviewed journals and, and, all of the the way that that publication system is set up, it is not accessible and it is not for the benefit of everyone. And there's something that like pharma companies do where they will work with what's called a key opinion leader. So this is a doctor who's at like the, the f- cutting edge of their field. They're like Dr. House for whatever sure, House yeah. was famous for. <laughs> I don't I don't know. This is, this is a bad analogy for being Q Laurie. Um, they'll work with that particular doctor on studies so they can put that doctor's name on the result publication because that doctor's name has clout. So if you are doing amazing research, life-changing research, and you don't have that doctor's name for clout, how hard it must be to get things published. For sure. But that is the case that we're we're looking at in terms of transparency. But it is so important about the necessity of it because it means that you're not going to repeat research results are publicly available which will allow people to make better decisions about either their healthcare or drug development or both okay so if a device or a drug goes through all of the tests preclinical, in vitro and in vivo a package of data is compiled on what is known about the drug which is a lot but not everything right um and it moves forward into clinical or human testing so at this point Based on the testing preclinically that we've already done, we have an idea for what we think the drug will do in the human body based on what we've seen it do in lab settings in animals. But we have to test that in the first clinical trial that is called a first in human trial. So the clinical bit of this drug development process is not one study. It's a series of studies designed to provide evidence to the government, to patients, to doctors everybody that the drug is safe and it works in the way that we think it's going to work and when you've gone through that process that series of experiments and you've collected all of your data it's packaged together off to the regulator the government regulator and they say yes you can sell this drug to these people or no you can't and if they say no they usually say you need to do this this and this as well devices are slightly different you still need the package of evidence but this is an area that in my opinion, does need some improvement because if you are creating a device that is similar to an already existing and approved device, you just have to prove its equivalence, the sameness of it. Now, there's something similar in drugs called bioequivalence. So when a drug is off patent, so a a drug patent usually lasts 25 years, you can get them extended in certain circumstances. And then after that, any Tom, Dick or Harry can manufacture the same drug and sell it. That obviously cuts into the profit margins of pharma companies. Boo-hoo. Those drugs are commonly called generics. In order to get a generic approved, you just have to demonstrate that it is bioequivalent 
or biologically the same as the original approved drug. Because if it's the same chemically, it's going to do the same stuff in the body, right? So I will always have a generic because they're cheaper um, and they're bioequivalent. So they're doing the same thing. So there's something similar in drugs in terms of this equivalence. But here's the difference. If you're creating a device that's similar to something that was approved in the 60s, maybe the standards were very different. You can get a device approved that maybe wouldn't be approved if there was nothing like it on the market. Whereas drugs have this continuous kind of review process so if a drug doesn't meet the standards that come in today it will be re-reviewed by regulators or regulators will look at like red flag data that comes out from safety and go actually drug companies you need to do this this and this test to prove that we're happy about it so it's less of a risk in drugs than devices you can have grandfathering in of devices in a way that you don't get with drugs and in a way that I don't think is necessarily a good thing. I think one thing, something kind of new coming to mind for me here, uh, but the, I like, what about, I mean, don't we talk about how women's oral contraceptives, so pill contraceptives, birth control, mm. hormonal, hormonal, contraception. Co- yeah. hormonal mm-hmm. contraception, yes, birth control, like has like a bunch of side effects that most like drugs would not be approved if they had that many side effects today, but they continue to be approved because so is that an example of that getting grandfathered in? Cause that sounds almost, I don't know, like, yeah. Okay. I can, I think I see where you're coming from. So we're talking about the fact that you and I know, and many other people in the world will know that hormonal contraception has, has a, a whole wealth of negative side effects. Any drug will have side effects. There's not a drug in the world that doesn't have a side effect. What you're trying to do is get the maximum benefit for the minimum amount of side effect. And that is usually done in a number of ways. But by getting the proper dose is one of them, for example. Would hormonal contraception be approved today if it went through the same testing process? I think hormonal contraception meets the standards. I think the difficulty here is what you and I will look at in terms of the risk-benefit analysis. And at the time when many of the hormonal contraceptives were approved, the benefit for a person to be able to control whether they were going to become pregnant was enormous. And you would take the risk of some things over that. Whether that's the same today, we have no way of knowing. It's a hypothetical question. We can't go back in time and and put put the drugs with no other information in front of the review bodies today and say, hey, would you approve this, yes or no? Because they're on the market and and a lot of people really see the benefit in taking them. What is done in situations like this where we learn about negative side effects of drugs, there's lots of different ways that it can be managed and handled. The, the, The strongest example of something that can be done in the US is something called a black box label. So you may have seen on certain drugs, there's a literally, it's a black box and that says, do not take this drug if you are pregnant, or if you are taking this drug, you must be under the care of a physician and they will monitor, for example, your liver function. And those warnings, and there's different, there's other examples in other countries around the world, those warnings are there because the side effects of that drug are known, really serious. But the benefit for many people may outweigh that risk. Like if we think about chemotherapy, the risks, the side effects are horrendous because what the chemo is doing is it's killing a whole bunch of cells. We just hope that it kills all of the cancer cells and not all of the person cells. That's basically what chemo is doing. It's so toxic. You you don't want to take chemo unless you really, really have to. And I think for hormonal contraception, in terms of empowering people who can who can become pregnant and giving them the control of their own bodies in that way, I think even knowing the risks that we know, many people would still choose to take Definitely. hormonal contraception. What is interesting is there was a few years ago... Um, some hormonal contraceptive for men that was tested and it didn't go very far because there were side effects and the drug company assumed that the side effects would be too great for a man to choose to take that drug and part of that equation is the fact that we have hormonal contraception for people who can become pregnant so they don't need to because that medical need yeah, is already Yeah, that's met. the thing about this that like there's just that one piece of it that's like okay, so I know that many many people who could become pregnant would choose to take hormonal contraception regardless of the side effects in order to control and have that autonomy through mm-hmm. the taking even if it gives them 
negative side effects that ne- that impact their life in a negative way that does not outweigh the benefit that they get of knowing that you know that they're safe uh in in another way and then there's yep. the and so that got approved like oh yeah we can let them make that decision and then it's like it's so weird that then like when this hormonal contraception for men or you know people with penises <laughs> came through yeah, like mm-hmm. that it was like kind of the opposite decision was made but it wasn't even a decision that was made by the regulator it was made by the pharmaceutical company not to continue the development and many of the men that were involved in the studies or many of the the people who were involved in the study said yeah we would have continued to take this but the drug company said nah too many side so, effects so interesting anyway we can <laughs> yeah isn't it okay so there are drugs still on the market today that were approved a while ago Paracetamol, Tylenol, was first sold in the UK in 1956. This is a a couple of years ago, a couple of years before I was born. This means that it is off patent, which means that there are generic versions of it. So you can get, like in the UK, you can get like 16 paracetamol for less than one pound. Fantastic. And we also have 60 plus years of safety, efficacy and side effect data. Because side effect data continues to be collected after drugs are approved. The disadvantages of an older product, like something like Tylenol paracetamol, it's not cutting edge science, right? It's not like glamorous, cool. Maybe if it's an antibiotic, some some bacteria are resistant to it, right? But the advantage of it is we have so much data from so many people, so many different combinations of life um, and variables to know whether it's safe to know whether it works for different things. Like paracetamol is still a frontline fever reducer because it works in so many situations, which is a very useful thing to have up your sleeve. There are also situations where drugs that have been on the market for a while get taken off the market because when you collect that big pile of evidence that you get after a drug is licensed and available, you go, actually, this isn't safe or it doesn't work that well. And that happens. So a drug may be on the market for a few years and it then may not be because either it doesn't work or it's not safe. Clinical trials will test a drug in a few thousand people, but when the drug is out on the market, it may go to a few million or a few billion people. And statistically, you will get other results when you test more widely. You may get the confirmation of the result that you got in the study, like paracetamol, cool beans, go for your life. Don't eat too many all at once or your liver will have a bad time. But in the right dose, in the right way for these indications... It works and it's safe. Whereas there are other drugs that are on the market and then they go out more widely and you go, oh yeah, no, this is this is hot garbage. And it could be that it just gets an update to its label. So maybe it gets new information on the label or it gets one of those black box labels or it could be, nope, this is coming off the market completely. And sometimes that's done by a regulator and sometimes it's done by the drug company. The bottom line is it's never a static thing. Just because, just because something is on the market doesn't mean it's always going to be on the market and doesn't mean it's not going to be pulled off for being not safe or not working anymore and it doesn't mean that something better isn't going to come along in future either like there could be paracetamol 2.0 in 10 years that's just has all of the benefits and none of the liver and kidney negative side effects for example the other advantage of older drugs is you've got a way better picture of long-term side effects for long-term use which is something that you don't normally get for clinical trials because they may not run for 15 years the longest you may have for a clinical trial may be four years we saw with the COVID vaccines, right? Those studies ran less than a year. So we don't have long-term side effect data. Most vaccines don't have long-term side effects, really, because it's in and out of your body once it's implemented the immune response. That's what the immune response clears it from your system. But we are now starting to get long-term side effects for long COVID, for example, which is terrible. So the more time that goes by, the more you will learn about diseases and their treatments, good and bad. It's similar with um, devices. Data is still collected after approval, but the grandfathering in is, is still something that I'm concerned about because it looks to me like a loophole in that I got this artificial hip approved in 1970. We're now, you know, 50 years later, things have moved on. Material science has moved on, but I can design an artificial hip that looks and acts exactly like one in 1970 and it will get approved. I'm not sure that that is the best for patients. So... This reminds me of my mom when she was a teenager, broke her ankle really mm. badly, like skateboarding. Um, oh my God, how cool is your <laughs> mom? It was, my, it was her little brother's skateboard and she like never used it. And then she, you know, like the one time she used oh, it, she like she... bust her ankle real bad um, kind of thing. Mm. 
And they put screws in there to put the bones back together. And those screws, like, one would hope (laughs) that nowadays there are better ways to help bones heal than putting these screws in. Because, Mm. like, those screws were, like, you know, back then the treatment, the therapy was, I think, to just leave them in. Like, she just still has those screws in her ankle. If she gets an x-ray today, Mm. you see it in there. And the, Mm -hmm. the... that device, like it might reduce range of motion on the joint or cause pain from time to time uh, or make future treatment of a similar injury or something else going on in her ankle much harder. And so one would hope that they're not using identical screws right in mm, in mm-hmm. bones, broken bones today as they were back when my mom yeah. busted her ankle. Yeah, yes. That's the thing with science. It's never ending. We're always learning more. Similarly, my mum had operations on both of her feet, but at different times. She had, and I can't remember which way around it was, one foot operated on like 10 years before the other. She had her bunions removed. And the first operation they put screws in. And the second they didn't, it was done a, a different way. Um, and the, she had to go back and have surgery again on her screw foot to have the screws taken out because they were moving and shifting and causing so much pain. So I think things have moved on based on that one anecdote story of my mum, just her experience one foot to the other foot. And for sure, I think now the technology for healing bones and and stabilizing them and managing them in that way, sometimes definitely screws will still go in, but they may come out. And certainly like an indication, right, of like the ways that it's important that we're updating devices and Mm. and things that assist healing or whatever because if we're not then we could still be just putting those you know those screws in and being like tough luck deal with the right whereas like now we know there are better ways and so that's why we have to keep kind of coming back to things and making sure that we actually have an optimized or that there isn't a better solution out there exactly yeah like the iron lung of its day was cutting edge but now no i don't I don't need it. No, thank you. Right. At at the time it was the best we had, but we have, we have different things now. Right. Yeah. And like, I, you know, if back then I would have said, yeah, put me in an iron lung because my alternative was I was going to die of polio. And today if you said like, by the way, polio's coming around. I'd say, Hey, get me that vaccine. (laughs) Yeah. Sign me up. Double dose. Yeah, exactly. So I think we just have to, we have to know what, what mechanisms are in place and we can talk about this in more detail in future for drugs that are already on the market um or devices that are already on the market to make sure they stay safe and available but also that yeah things are changing all the time and it can feel really unsettling where like if you go to the doctor and they say to you oh you've been taking this drug for 10 years but now there's this new one available and we think it might be better for you like that change can feel really confronting or if you're on a medication for a while and then the doctor says this drug isn't on the market anymore we have to find you something different Like that can suck, particularly if that drug is working for you as a patient to then have to go through the rigmarole of finding something else. But I would say there's always a reason for it. Right. Any questions about that kind of pile of information on drug and device development and how we kind of overviewed from a a 10,000 feet look at the whole process through? Okay, so... Before we wrap up, there's one more thing that I think I want to talk about, which is about who is involved in research. And we've touched on some of these different groups as we went through our 10,000 foot view of it. There are many different individuals, groups and organisations involved in research, and I have categorised them into a few main categories. So, pop quiz, Elise. Who do you think is involved in research? You list as many as you can and I'll... I'll stick them in, okay. Stick them into my categories. Well, you can't experiment on people without people so participants participants is the word yeah so you can call them patients or subjects but i like the word participant because subject sounds a little bit too non non-consensual to me like i'm yours i'm putting i'm making you subject to this treatment whereas participant they sound like they're engaged with it. Yeah. So the, these are the people who voluntarily choose to participate in research. Without them, as you said, there's no research. Okay. So that's one group of people, participants, the best. Next. You also cannot experiment on people without people to experiment on people. So researchers. The experimenters, as it were. Yeah, exactly. So the individuals or teams of people who conduct, lead or do the research. So depending on what we're doing, that could be 
academics at a university, doctors, nurses, um, all sorts of different people. Almost always it's going to be more than one person, but there's also almost always going to be a lead researcher who's kind of the head of the team. So, yeah, researchers. Okay, so we've got participants, we've got researchers. Who, Who else? else? Um, we've got the regulators, like the FDA and Ooh. the MH, not PRA. Elise, have you been swatting <laughs> up between podcasts? Yeah. Wow. Okay, so regulators, great. How how research is overseen does vary region to region. Um, there's usually a part of the government that's responsible for overseeing this kind of interventional drug research. So yeah, the FDA in the USA, the MHRA, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, MH, not PRA, uh, the Therapeutic Goods Administration or TGA in Australia. There's loads of them. Chinese FDA, it's all good. Um, the regulators, for sure. Um, Who else? I'm thinking about our pot of gold and Pfizer. Uh, oh. So, mm -hmm. um, you can't do research without money from Viagra to fund it. <laughs> yep. Okay. I mean, not all of the money most comes from Viagra. I'm Sorry. Just, okay. No, no. I think, I think most of that money probably went to the shareholders. Anyway. Um, funding for research can come from a few different places. Some research is actually government funded, some by charities like cancer research and some by pharmaceutical companies from their Viagra or equivalent money. Interestingly, of research conducted in the UK in 2022, only about 20% of it was, was commercially funded. So by pharma companies, the rest, 80% was funded by government charities or other organisations which when I think about like the medical research industry, I only think about the commercial bit of it. But there's so much other stuff that goes on, like so much academic research that goes on that we have to keep an eye on because it's not just the commercial stuff. The commercial stuff is what will hit the news because the pharma companies have got the money. But that's not the only thing that's happening. So, yes, the, the, the funders or the sponsors of research. So we've got participants, researchers, sponsors or funders. We talked about regulators. Who um, else? Well, you just talked about the news. So more tangentially related people, science communication, uh, where you would read about this in just kind of your newspaper or like just mm. kind of the... The people who support the research more broadly, I I don't. I'm trying to think like, kind of, kind everyone, of everyone else, else Debbie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like members of the public. So we all have an interest in the outcomes of research because it may affect our future treatment. So yeah, definitely. Um, medical communication experts, news journalists, you and me, right? All sorts of people that are interested or engaged in research. Patient advocates, charity groups all kinds of other organisations that, that look at or report on what research is doing. Definitely, they're involved. And interestingly, I say that like everybody has a vested interest in outcomes of research, but historically speaking, underserved groups have not been included in research in the way that they deserve to be. For participants, for researchers, for patients, for the public... Uh, it has been dominated for a long time by the dominant social groups, right? So in the UK, that would be white people, particularly men, particularly cis men, particularly straight cis men. And when it comes to like volunteering for research, that is something that takes time and effort. And if you don't geographically space where your research is, you won't hit every demographic because they're not equitably dispersed in the UK. And I'm sure it's the same in America. And so we have often seen that inclusion of different groups in research has been not done deliberately or by accident. Uh, and that's something that there is now a movement to uh, try and do something about it. So um, the FDA, for example, published some guidance a couple of years ago on uh, race and ethnicity inclusion in research. And that's becoming legislation, which I absolutely applaud um, because if it's not law, people aren't going to do it. If it's guidance, 
you know, the best practice will be to do it, but not everyone's going to do it. And in the UK, they're they're doing something similar in that they're, they're starting off with guidance in the hope that it will progress to becoming legislation. The UK guidance is going to be broader than just about race and ethnicity, though. It's going to look at gender. It's going to look at um, all sorts of things from digital exclusion to um, social economic access to race obviously to religion to culture to language all kinds of things that could exclude someone from participating in research and interestingly there's also a situation that we've seen where it's not equitable who gets funding for their research so who can apply for and successfully get the grants that fund 80 percent of the research right if you look at the dollar spend on something like cystic fibrosis, which is a disease that predominantly affects white people, not always, but predominantly, versus something like sickle cell anemia, which predominantly affects people of colour, particularly black people. There are more patients in the world with sickle cell anemia, but the dollar spend on cystic fibrosis is like 10 times the amount. I mean, even just the barriers that applying for grants and organisations that are already underfunded or understaffed um, or don't have experience applying, applying for grants or can't keep a grant writer on staff. Things like that yeah. creates systems where the people with the most money often get more money to continue doing what they're doing because they have the support structures in their organizations already. I deal with this all the time in my job. Um, and like the advocacy yeah. that we're trying to do and the inclusion efforts I'm trying to do. Um, and the and the huge amount of bureaucratic weight and pressure there is around not changing yeah. how that system works because it's so much work to yeah. shift one little piece of it. Yeah, it's it's a lot. It's a lot. And you end up delaying your project by five months. <laughs> I have no hard Absolutely. feelings about anything that's going on in my life around these things <laughs> right now. <laughs> um, you definitely don't no, sound bitter, bitter about, about it. All. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, just just doing like some really baseline inclusion effort from a grant providing grant money side creates insane. Uh, that's a terrible word. I'm sorry. It creates like just wild amounts of work and backlog and slow down and the amount of pressure you get to just like move forward with half baked things. I don't know. It's there's so many barriers. Yeah. It's a lot to think about but hey it is another thing that's better in 2023 <laughs> because it is and interestingly in the uk like the nihr the national institute for health research who do fund research they are now expecting these kind of inclusion topics to be considered in in those grant applications and in the protocols for research and i i think what's what's good about the work that I've seen regulators and organisations like the NIH are doing is they realise that it's a journey. So where we are now, it's partially about, you know, educating the people who are applying to do research. And it's partially about providing like good templates and good guidance. And it's partially about, you know, receiving an application and offering really constructive feedback to say, these bits of it are great. You're a little bit weak here. And it's something that we've seen in the UK over the past few years with what's called patient and public involvement. Historically, research has been written by people doing the research, not the people experiencing the research. And that's a garbage. If I'm a patient with whatever situation or if I'm a, a, a participant with whatever I've got going on, I should be involved in how the research is designed because I'm the one that gets to say whether this is burdensome or not. And so patient and public involvement is a big part now of research design but it's one of those where it's still kind of a journey. Not every researcher is 100% on board with how it should be done all of the time. But we are light years ahead of where we were 10 years ago. And it will be the same with inclusion in research. There is a lot to be done. Like the fact that, you know, most protocols that I, I have ever worked on in my life, say men and women between X age range. You're like, well, why have you done that? There is no reason for you to have that criteria. There's an Alzheimer's study that had a lower and upper age limit for patients, but was also using a diagnostic criteria. So you had to meet certain criteria with your Alzheimer's in order to qualify. You could have been 30 or you could have been 95 when you've met those criteria. The age didn't matter. Whether you're a man or a woman doesn't matter. If it's an early phase study, like if it's early on in the drug development, you may wish to exclude high risk patient groups like children, cool, and people who may be or can become pregnant because you don't want to affect 
any potential fetus. But that criteria of, are you pregnant, is completely separate to your age, your sex or your gender. So even just getting people to update the way they think about things, because so often, like when you're writing a research protocol, you'll take the one that you wrote last time, you'll copy paste and you'll change some of the words around. Whereas actually we kind of, and I know this because I've done it, we actually need a kind of wholesale over hall of well, yeah. why is that even in there do i need an age criteria no do i need men or women no absolutely people so yeah lots lots to be done but i am encouraged by the fact that regulators are talking about it and starting to do things about it and not just regulators but other organizations that oversee and set up research okay so we took a bit of a tangent there, but we were talking about who's involved in research. We talked about uh, participants, researchers, sponsors, funders, regulators, members of the public. Is there anyone else that you would like to add to the list? Uh, brain empty face, brain empty. not one There's, thought. I'm missing one? I wouldn't say you were missing one. I think you've hit all five. I would add to regulators like other government organisations. So usually on top of there being a regulator to ensure that research is ethical, countries have separate independent ethics committees to review research plans and conduct. There may also be other specific regulators in different countries, like those that um, license hospitals or laboratories, or those that license doctors, like the General Medical Council in the UK, for example. Or in the UK, we have a body that oversees if you want to put ionising radiation, like you want to do an X-ray, or you want to give radiotherapy to a patient, there's a separate body that oversees that. So they're not only involved in research, they're also involved in general patient care, but... Therefore, by dint of research being part of patient care, they also are involved in research. So all of those kind of organisations may be involved making sure that research is done by the book. You know, all ship shape and good. Well, that's it, I think. What have we covered today, Elise? What do you Um, remember? We talked about preclinical research and devices and drugs or molecules, chemicals that get tested in vitro which is like test tubes and petri dishes and in vivo which is animal testing um we talked about how devices and drugs can be targeted they're targeted pursuits Mm -hmm. in research um and we talked about sharing research and the importance of that the goal Mm -hmm. is to prove safe and efficacious as far as you can in preclinical so that when it goes to clinical, the first in human Mm -hmm. trials um, have at least eliminated that there's going to be like total organ failure, most likely, although it could still happen. Look at you learning first in human. We talked about who's involved in research, how we kind of, yeah, yeah, how how we decide that things are safe and efficacious a little bit in terms of like what steps it has to go through, how things can get grandfathered in, how things get discovered, uh, how things get shared, and then who's involved, which is in no order. Participants, regulators, the public, experimenters, and sponsors. Researchers, those five groups. And we talked about inclusion in research. And how there's a lot more to do. Yes. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Oh, good job. Yeah, so that's a lot. And I think... What's important to note is we did this from like 10,000 feet. So we covered a lot today um, that I hope in future we can get to in in a lot more detail. We can really kind of dig in. And we did throw a couple of things in the philosophy ravine that we will get back to. When we're we're feeling brave. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When Andy's free more. Yeah, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Any questions on anything that we've covered today, Elise? Why are you so brilliant? Oh, gross. No compliments. Thank you. It's not the way. (laughs) This is the way. Okay. Therefore, if there are no questions, we can wrap this up. We hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast. If you have any questions or would like to get in touch with us, no compliments, please, though, you can email us at clinical.research.intro at gmail.com. Please do subscribe so you get the next episode automatically. And of course please rate and review. You can also check out the Clinical Research 101 Instagram page that I've been running for a while now that has a ton more information on it. Um, So that's uh, clinical.research.intro. 
uh, on Instagram if you want to check that out. So that's a big thank you and goodbye from me, Debbie. Say goodbye, uh, Elise. I'm going to make a promise to people that if they send a compliment to you, I will read it and force you to listen and react oh. and then include it in the next episode. So that's, hey, if you want to email a compliment to Debbie, um, mm. you can listen to her squirm. Anyway, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. Hope you uh, check out the next episode, too. Bye. Goodbye, Elise.